Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Under the Wire. Um, just like that, it's winter. Last week, I was sitting here in a t-shirt. This week, I'm freezing. So welcome to winter. Welcome to another year of flu vaccinations. And welcome to uh, a new disease, coronavirus, that we've been talking about nonstop on Under the Wire for the last couple of months. Today, I have a wonderful guest. I've linked to his article, which I've read through. I don't know if you can see that. It is Flaws in Coronavirus Pandemic Theory by David Crow. Um, David Crow is coming to us from Canada today where they're going into summer uh, just as we go into winter. And it will be interesting to see how winter in Australia um, deals with coronavirus and influenza this year um, during this time of lockdown. So I don't know how many of you have taken the time to read David's work. He also does a regular uh, podcast called The Infectious Myth, uh, which I've only started listening to a few weeks ago, which is just incredible. So I highly recommend it to anyone uh, looking for information on this subject and also on the subjects of infectious diseases, uh, which in and of itself could be a misnomer. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce David. And we're going to have a chat. Hi, David. Good to see you. Hi. Hello from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're right. We're just we're just getting rid of snow uh, here. Uh, so yeah, we're looking forward to spring and uh, and summer coming up. That's great. Well, we've had a bit of a horrendous summer here in Australia with fires and really hot weather. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to a bit of cooler weather and maybe some cooler heads around this subject. Though that might be a bit of a <laughs> A, va a vain hope. <laughs> All right. Yes, so, David, your your um, paper, you've been updating it regularly, I've noticed, because I printed out an earlier copy and there have been quite a few changes to it. So you've been updating it as things go on. Um, right. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your background and why you became interested in the subject of viruses and infectious diseases. I studied biology and, and mathematics and graduated in the late 1970s. And um, I was studying an area of, of biology called taxonomy, which is basically studying evolution and the relationships between species. And I realized that the concept of species was impossible to define. I won't go into all the complexities, but it kind of shocked me that, that I, there's this entire science that's based on a concept that is undefinable. And that doesn't mean that the science is is no good, but it it means that there's a, there's a lot of uncertainties and inconsistencies in science. And I guess I I was always fascinated by those those sort of the edges where everything looks good in the middle, and you get out to the edge, and everything kind of gets really fuzzy. So in the mid in the early 1990s, I my son who was two wouldn't sleep, and my wife basically handed him to me and said, "I'm going to bed. <laughs> you." <laughs> You walk around the living room until he falls asleep. So I was a little bit bored. So I turned on the radio and there was this really intellectual late night program. And it was talking about, does HIV cause AIDS? And I was fascinated. And it was a two-part series. So the next night, even though my son went to bed, I stayed up and listened to the second part. I got the transcript. I got some references. And that started my journey into uh, HIV and AIDS, which which took quite a few years. And along the way, <clears throat> I had people come up to me and say, you know, it's the same thing with um, mad cow disease, or it's the same thing with polio, 
or it's the same thing um, with you know other diseases that there's actually environmental or nutritional causes to these diseases. And at first, I was very dismissive. I, I really didn't want to go there because I was having enough trouble just trying to get my head around you know HIV. HIV, what is AIDS? What mm -hmm. is HIV? Does HIV even exist? Was a question that was coming up. But I eventually started to investigate these things. And around uh, the year 2000, there was a, a so-called epidemic of West Nile virus in New York City and a lot of attention. So I said, why don't I look at the papers and see whether the virus exists? So I looked at the science and they did things like they, they took uh, a crow brain and they ground it up. They used the fancy word triturate, which I had to look up in the dictionary. And uh, then they added it to a cell culture, and the, some of the cells in the cell culture died. And then they said, which blew me away, we isolated the virus. And I'm going, what did I miss? <laughs> like, this, this is not isolation of a virus. Like, there's something in the crow brain, but it could also be environmental, or it could just be that when you release all the internal substances from crow brain cells, that they're toxic to cell cultures, right? Like, this experiment means absolutely nothing. So I went on from there and uh, studied polio quite extensively. Um, a, a great man named Mark Purdy believed that mad cow disease in England was caused by um, a British pesticide program using the organophosphate pesticide Fosmat. So I got into that and trying to understand uh, that whole um, catastrophe in England, which ironically is connected to coronavirus because the guy who did the mathematical modeling, who got it so wrong on mad cow disease, is now controlling the British government, uh, Neil Ferguson. Right. He was involved in the mad cow modeling. I didn't realize so these, that. He, he, these people keep getting recycled. Mm. Around 2003, of course, SARS hit. And uh, so I did a really extensive review of SARS a little bit after, like 2004, 2005. And I discovered some amazing things. And there's, there's amazing parallels with coronavirus because SARS is another coronavirus, supposedly. For example, um, I found evidence that SARS wasn't really infectious at all. There was a beautiful experiment produced by the Chinese by accident. They had some empty space on the AIDS floor of a hospital. So who did they put there? They put the SARS patients. <laughs> of so course. They mixed, of course. <laughs> so SARS is the most infectious virus known to man. And these people are immune suppressed. And they were not in the hospital just because they were HIV positive. They had symptoms of immune suppression. The paper um, indicated that although uh, most people were not put in the same room, there was free airflow between all the rooms. There was um, a lounge where the patients could mingle. And one AIDS patient by mistake was put in a room with SARS patients. And the grand total number of SARS cases amongst the AIDS patients was zero. So it was, it was beautiful, a completely <laughs> unethical experiment, but an accidental experiment that proved that this thing is nowhere near as infectious as thought. I identified three iatrogenic causes for illness, doctor-caused um, illness. They used high-dose corticosteroids, and that was noted to cause permanent neurological damage wow. and also osteonecrosis or the breakdown of your bones, which caused in Hong Kong an epidemic of hip replacements and other joint replacements after the SARS epidemic. So that was one of the drugs. Another drug was the antiviral drug ribavirin. Like a lot of antiviral drugs, ribavirin interferes with DNA synthesis. So it was, it was associated with a higher death mm -hmm. rate, 
75% of the people who took ribavirin had liver problems. It caused hemolytic anemia, which is like the breakdown of your blood entirely. Uh, the third one, which I didn't really take as seriously back then as I should have, was intubation. And uh, there was a study in Hong Kong. There was one hospital that resisted intubation and 13 hospitals that put patients on a ventilator immediately. And they discovered that there was a four times, more than four times higher death rate in those 13 hospitals that intubated right away, more than four times. So then they said, well, maybe the one hospital that didn't intubate, maybe it didn't get very severe patients. So that's the reason for the death rate. So they looked at the, uh, the status of the patients on admission, and that one hospital actually had sicker patients than the other 13. So the death rate was actually more than more than four times, right. maybe five or six times. The reason, this, this is very important, the reason why the hospitals were intubating right away is because they felt that this virus was so contagious that if they didn't intubate, the staff were at risk. And so another thing this paper said was that in this hospital that did not intubate, there was not a single staff member who came down with SARS. So we know that from SARS, and yet we're making the same exact mistake today with COVID-19, with SARS-CoV-2. I mean, it's, it is so stupid. Yes, it, there is. Um, I, I have uh, an advisory paper from some Australia-New Zealand health organization that basically says you should aggressively move to intubation mm -hmm. to protect the staff. I have a document from England that says about the same thing. And I, I think uh, this is other places where it might, I don't, I don't have documentation, seem to be doing the same thing. It's absolutely shocking. I saw a paper from China that said we put 32 patients on ventilators and 31 died. That's 97% death wow. rate. Okay. So it's China. You know, maybe they don't know how to properly do it or whatever. So then in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the top four medical journals in the world, came out a survey of 5,700 New York City coronavirus patients. And a significant number of them were put on ventilators. And the death rate amongst 65-plus people, people over the, older than 65, who were put on ventilators was... 97%. Well, that's consistent. And the death rate, yes. <laughs> and the death rate amongst 18 to 65 was 76%. So the, the, these ventilators that a month ago we were told, if we don't get 10,000 ventilators, the health system's going to collapse and all these people are going to die. The ventilators are killing people. Yeah. And I've had people tell me that it's still worth putting people on ventilators with a 97% death rate because they saved 3% of the people, which is inventing data because you don't know what would have happened if you hadn't put them on. But that's the same excuse used for flu vaccination. They say that if you don't vaccinate people against flu, 2% will die from flu in a winter season. If you do vaccinate, 1% will die. So you're saving all these people by vaccinating them against flu. It is science and mathematics turned on its head with absolutely no evidence. So 
we're killing people with ventilators. The, the United States, they're so proud of how many ventilators they've built since this COVID-19. They're going to supply the world with ventilators, one ventilator for every American. It is... <laughs> with a chicken and an apple pie. <laughs> in every pot. <laughs> a ventilator in every, in every home. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it is... Science just tends to repeat, and I'm saying science because it's not science at all. Science is not what's being practiced in most hospitals, in most laboratories, and in most health departments around the world. It's superstition and, and good marketing. That's basically it. So science is being turned on its head. Um, you said something in your paper I'm going to go to now, which is probably a total change, but it's very important, I think. This, this line really stood out to me. Um, and, and looking at COVID-19, I think it's really important. Definitions of important diseases are surprisingly loose, perhaps embarrassingly so. So we're, we're looking at an epidemic of COVID-19 that's putting people in hospital, and we're basing it on, I've spoken with um, Loretta Bolgan from uh, Corzelva about COVID-19 and she said that the symptoms that they're seeing in Italy with COVID-19 are completely different. They're mainly gastric symptoms that then go on to neurological symptoms which is not at all the flu-like symptoms that we're seeing in many other parts of the world. So how do we know what the symptoms of COVID-19 are in order to test well, people? Right. So let me let me go back to SARS because there's an interesting difference and, and parallel between SARS uh, 2003 and the coronavirus. So the definition of SARS was, and I mean, this is why it's it's kind of embarrassing when you realize how simplistic it is, is you had to have a, a respiratory symptom. And as we discussed before the show, one of those was a fever of 38 degrees or more when the standard body temperatures, it goes up to like 37.2 by some people's definitions. You had to have an epidemiological connection with another patient. So that's one of the reasons why so many um, medical staff got diagnosed, because, of course, they were working with SARS patients. And then thirdly, you needed a positive SARS test. And how SARS disappeared was that once they had everybody in hospitals or quarantined, it was not possible to have contact with a previous SARS patient. So they didn't test you for the virus and therefore it went away. So the problem with coronavirus is that the test they were using in 2003 was based on PCR, which I think we'll probably talk about more later. Yeah. Since then, their confidence in the technology has gotten out of control. This is a very powerful technology, but it's also technology can mislead you very easily. And so now a confirmed case by the World Health Organization definition is simply a positive coronavirus test no symptoms, no contact with another patient. So what happened in Italy is, is like the first patient in Italy uh, had not traveled, had had no contact with another uh, coronavirus patient. He just out of nowhere tested positive. And within 24 hours, they had 30 other people and none of them had a connection with their first patient. So then they start saying in Italy, well, anybody who's got symptoms and there are no symptoms of coronavirus, it's like fever and a cough, which could mean anything, yep. you, should, you should get tested. So this 88-year-old man in San Marino, which is w further south, a long way from Lombardy, tests positive. Well, he hasn't traveled. He's probably quite sickly and elderly. 
and he hasn't been in contact with another patient. And there aren't any coronavirus cases anywhere around that, but they just skipped by the information that maybe this was a false positive test result, and then they diagnosed him. And then as the testing spread throughout Italy, so did the cases. And so it created the illusion that they had this massively infectious, quickly spreading infection, whereas what they actually had was a massive uh, spread of testing with a test that produced an unknown number of false positives. I think the number of false positives is 100%. The Chinese published a paper saying it was only 80%, so we can argue over, over <laughs> that. But it's treated by doctors as if the rate of false positives was 0%. Right. And that's an absurd position to, to be in. And if you accepted that there were some false positives, it would actually solve some mysteries some impossible, I've been collecting impossible test results. And I think the most humorous is a 68-year-old man in a, a city 500 kilometers from Wuhan. He, he's got some minor symptoms like a tiredness, cough, fever, stuff like that. So he goes to the hospital, they test him, he's positive. They keep him in the hospital, his symptoms resolve and he tests negative. So now he has to go into quarantine for 14 days. So they put him in quarantine and three days later they test him and he's positive again, but he has no symptoms. So they bring him back to the hospital and put him on antiviral drugs. They put him on drugs even though he had no symptoms. Wow. So they keep him in the hospital for a few days and he tests negative. They're gonna be sure this time. He tested negative four times. So they put him back into quarantine and three days later he tests positive again. <laughs> So they drag, they drag him back to the hospital, put him on more antiviral drugs until he tests negative, and then they send him home. Now, nowhere in the paper from the Chinese medics did it say, possibly this could be a false positive. The, the South Koreans apparently have admitted that they have a large number of coronavirus patients who've tested positive. If they had symptoms, the symptoms resolved, they tested negative, and then a week later, two weeks later, they test positive again. And now they're saying, oh, these are false positives because they got pushed into a situation where they could not explain it any other way. Right, they're cornered. But, right. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to say that an asymptomatic person can be a false positive, there's no reason why a symptomatic person can't be a false positive. There's, there's nothing that says if you have a cough, you can't have a false positive coronavirus test. So we, we have no idea how many false positive test results there are, and everybody sticks their head in the sand and, and says the test is amazing. Maybe because we want there's a certain percentage or a certain segment of the government and the medical community that wants there to be a coronavirus pandemic, because if there wasn't, and we've locked down and we've destroyed the world's economy over nothing, they're going to have some explaining to do that they don't necessarily want to explain. Everyone seems to have bought into this bill of goods. And it might be a good time for me to ask you this question, which is, have we ever, through purification, identified SARS-CoV-2? Have we ever found the virus? No. Um, I, I've, made, I've made a wisecrack a few times. You can tell a politician is lying when their lips are moving. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And, and you can tell that a virologist was lying when they used the word isolation. So there's innumerable papers that say we isolated the virus. But let me describe how they did it for in the first New England Journal of Medicine paper from China. And this is standard practice. 
So they took a nasal swab and it, they processed it somehow. Like you have to add uh, antibiotics to kill bacteria and things like that. So you, you process it and then you add it to a cell culture. They observed cells dying in the cell culture and they wrote, we have isolated the virus. This clearly, it's not specific. No. It, even if it identified a virus, it doesn't identify a specific virus. So then they, they searched around for RNA and they found a long string of RNA, which looked like what previously had been called coronavirus. But nobody's ever purified a coronavirus. So the, the proper thing to do would be if the coronavirus exists, then particles that are protein shells, as you've seen in these gaudy uh, computer-generated images mm -hmm. of the coronavirus that are everywhere, uh, there's a protein shell, and inside that protein shell is the RNA. So if those exist, you should be able to purify them. And then once you have pure particles, then if you analyze for RNA, the RNA comes from those particles. And if that RNA matches what you got out of this cell culture, then you know that it's it's the same thing. But they at this point, they do not know that it's not endogenous RNA. Ex they do not know that our bodies didn't produce the RNA. Right. So that step has never been done for SARS-CoV-2. That step has never been done for any coronavirus. So at this point, nobody knows that these viruses even exist. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think what they did is they, they looked at people like with the common cold and they found some RNA um, patterns and they said, oh, this must be the virus. Like they leaped to these conclusions. Um, and with, you know, the new world of biotechnology and PCR, this, this technology that underlines the test, mm. these things are really easy to do, but they're not grounded in anything, right? If you find RNA, I mean, for, for the benefit of your listeners, RNA is found in every cell of your body. Every cell of your body contains mitochondria, which, which are known to have their own DNA, but they also have their own RNA. Bacteria have RNA, fungi have RNA, parasites have RNA, plants have RNA. So every living being has RNA. So, and the, the RT-PCR test cannot distinguish between those types of RNA. If you put RNA into an RT-PCR test, it functions pretty much the same, no matter where the RNA came from. There's some difference is depending on the contaminants that come along with the RNA, like depending on the environment, you're, you're not going to get identical results. But basically, the fundamental process of duplicating DNA in the PCR test is the same no matter where it came from. And that's one of the powerful things about the PCR test. But it's also, um, you know, a weakness. It's, it's like giving an 18-year-old a super powerful car. Like it can backfire when they drive down the highway at 200 kilometers an hour, right? <laughs> And what we're seeing um, now is and, the backfire. <laughs> yes. So uh, recently I interviewed uh, uh, Professor Stephen Buston, who's, who's maybe the world expert on quality control of RT-PCR. And he walked me through how this whole sequence works. And um, when I described um, it, it, what I, I felt was the fundamental problem, and I, I'll describe that in a second, he said, in his beautiful British Irish accent, that's rubbish. <laughs> and, and, which I was not expecting. So let me explain. Um, I, I've said this um, 
that RT-PCR test for coronavirus is not a binary test. And in fact, most biological tests are not binary. What does this mean? Well, the results are given to you as negative or positive, but the actual test does not produce a binary result. It does not produce either positive or negative. It produces a continuum. Now, on the, RT, on the PCR test, PCR is a cycle, and at each cycle of PCR, it doubles the amount of DNA that you have. And I don't want to go into all the details of how this works, but for the coronavirus test, they cycle probably between 20 and 45 times. And if you reach a certain number, then it is declared to be negative, right? So okay. if you detect RNA before, say, 37 cycles with a certain test, that is considered positive. And if you don't, it's considered negative. So I recently looked at 33 FDA-approved RT-PCR tests, and I discovered that the arbitrary cutoff varies from 30 to 45. So Big range. there's 33 tests. And yes, and actually 45 compared to 30 is 30,000 times more sensitive because the sensitivity doubles with each step. Right. So it's not really... A 15 difference, it's a 30,000 difference between these two tests. Now, Professor Bustin said he didn't really think it was reliable to go more than 35 cycles. And yet there were only three, three tests that used 35 or less. So we have 30 out of 33 tests that are pushing the envelope on PCR. And what happens if you push the envelope? Well, you can get false positives. Uh, due to the nature of, of PCR. Um, and another really disturbing thing about the tests was how do you decide if somebody's positive? Well, you, you think there'd be a single definition. So some tests looked for one gene, some looked for two, some looked for three. The ones that looked for two or three, there were two differences. Some looked for both genes and some said either is possible. So if you have the N gene or the E gene, uh, you only need one of them to have a positive. The ones that looked for three generally said any two out of three are positive. So this raises the question of you've detected the virus, supposedly, and this virus is a very simple organism that has always has the same genes in it. And, you know, it's it has like minor variations of bases, you know, like it's not always, it's not like 30,000 identical beads. But it's, it's pretty similar, and it has to have the same genes. But here you've got tests saying, well, if there's a gene missing in the test, that's no big deal. It's still good. But, <laughs> right. It's like finding an animal where there's some like critical feature of the animal that's, that's missing, and you're still saying it's, it's the animal. You know, it's like an anteater, and you find that it's not eating ants. And, and you go, well, whatever. <laughs> the blind men with the elephants, you know, it's the same thing. We're all looking at this one tiny piece. But my question remains, if we have never actually purified coronavirus, we don't have that base, how can we even test for it? How can we test for something where we don't know what it is? It's a test for RNA. So they've said this uh, strand of 30,000 RNA bases mm is the coronavirus. So the RT-PCR test, it, it's not smart, right? Whether or not it's a virus or it's endogenous, the, the RT-PCR test doesn't care. 
it, it runs and it produces a result and that's its job and it does it good at what it does. It does not make a decision over what kind of RNA this is and it can't make th that decision. A another point I should make with the tests is that the, the full sequence is believed to be about 30,000 bases, but the tests are only looking for about 1% of that. So how can you have accuracy when you're looking at such a tiny percentage of the whole? There is no way to actually determine that. So can we, you said before, as far as you're concerned, we could be looking at 100% false positives because the right. test that we're using is simply not geared. It's not even a matter of accuracy. It's not really geared to detect whether or not this is coronavirus. It's just geared to determine whether you're finding these particular genes in the test, whether or not they're related to coronavirus. These genes could be in in contamination. They could be in bacteria. They could be in completely different um, RNA. I realized um, yesterday I had this sudden realization Somebody who was criticizing somebody else who's, who's um, questioned whether the virus exists said, we searched for the DNA in the BLAST database, which is a huge database of DNA, and we didn't find it in any human DNA. Therefore, we know that this is not human DNA. But I realized there's a huge flaw in this. Part of the RT-PCR test is that you convert RNA to DNA because the PCR portion of the test only works with DNA. Right. But RNA, when it's produced by your body, is not produced in a simple one-to-one -one correspondence. So in other words, uh, to produce um, RNA, uh, it's transcribed from DNA. So at that moment, it exactly matches the DNA. But after it's produced, there's all kinds of processes that occur that change the RNA. So if you had a database of RNA sequences, you might find the coronavirus in those sequences. There's no correlation between the RNA sequences, or there's, not, there's no tight correlation between the RNA sequences and DNA. So saying that you don't find the corresponding DNA mm -hmm. in a DNA database is a non sequitur. There funny. is no RNA database. We haven't done a complete a uh, human RNA genome, which would probably be very difficult because RNA is produced on a temporary basis. If you go out and run a marathon, you're going to be producing RNA to produce, um, you know, muscle fibers and stuff like that. If you have a serious disease, you're probably producing other RNA. If you're under a lot of emotional stress, you may produce other RNA. So to, to sort of catalog all the possible RNA that could be produced by the human body would be an incredible task. And to, to my knowledge, nobody's put together that database. And so th therefore we cannot say that this RNA is not endogenous. Right, that's right. So the whole testing regimen is false from the word go, and yet it's being used to determine what policies our governments are going to be um, using to go forward here, we are looking at a situation where ignorance and, and I, I keep using the term superstition, it's more of a religious belief than it is a scientific belief that this particular virus um, is, is related to the symptoms that we're seeing and that these deaths that we're 
calling deaths from coronavirus are not actually being caused by the treatments that people have been given. I want to go back to something that you mentioned before with SARS, the old SARS um, from a few years ago. You said that a lot of the people were being treated with a um, an antiviral. Was it remdesivir or something? I can't remember. No, <clears throat> no, it was called ribavirin, ribavirin. and it had previously, previously been used for um, hepatitis C and hantavirus. It hadn't been terribly successful for either. If anybody's familiar with um, HIV and AIDS, the original AIDS drug was called AZT, mm. and ribavirin is a close cousin of AZT. It really has not been used for this coronavirus, which is, which is kind of a good thing. But I should point out that remdesivir is in um, uh, just a slightly different class of drugs. Right. Now, I, I want to explain how these drugs work. So we were talking about RNA and the, the bases or the nucleotides, and DNA is the same. There's four beads. ACGT in DNA, and a DNA string is a string of these beads. There's only four different beads, incredibly long string. And then it has a complementary side, which has the matching beads on the other side. So a nucleoside analog or a nucleotide analog, there's two slightly different drugs, is a broken bead. So if you have a, a DNA chain that's duplicating, so you have one complete DNA chain, and then the DNA polymer polymerase is adding bases to make the chain. If it incorporates a molecule of AZT or ribavirin or remdesivir, the DNA chain building will stop. That, so that's, that's like throwing works. in, that's like throwing cluster bombs into your body. So um, if, if you have immune cells, uh, it will damage the ability of the body to produce new immune cells, to produce new blood cells. Your hair, of course, uh, that's a common side effect mm -hmm. of these drugs. Is, is your hair and your fingernails are damaged because those have to be replaced on a regular basis. But there are many aspects in your body that require ongoing replenishment of the cells, right? The cells are kind of a commodity that has to be continually um, replenished. Obviously, the bacteria in your gut would be damaged because mm. the DNA and the bacteria would be damaged. So this, this class of drugs, uh, nucleoside, nucleotide analogs, is one of the most toxic class of drugs. That, it may be the most toxic class of organic drugs. I think there's some metal-based drugs like arsenic-based drugs and things like that that may be more toxic. But um, in terms of an organic compound, the nucleoside analogs are incredibly toxic. So we have a situation where we have, we have elderly people. Like in, in Italy, the first 2003 deaths, average age 80, and 50% had three or more uh, pre-existing health conditions. Mm -hmm. Out of the 2003 cases, there were only three people who did not have comorbidities. Wow. So everybody in this group um, was elderly. I don't think it was anybody under 30 in the entire group. So then we're going to take these people, we're going to isolate them from their family. We're even isolating them from the nurses because they can't see the nurses. The nurses are hidden behind, you know, masks and gloves and gowns and all this kind of stuff. We're going to give them unproven drugs to help Gilead's stock price or <laughs> whoever else yeah. is, is doing them. And we will randomly intubate some of them. Like, how can... These are fragile people. Yep. 
And, and these are people who probably are, are on their last few months of life anyway, right? By the time you've got kidney failure and diabetes and you're 90 years old, I think you could predict that that person is not going to live maybe more than one more year. Right. But the ideal situation is that the family has a chance to say goodbye. And that's completely being removed in this case. And how does this elderly, scared person manage their, um, their health care? When the nice doctor comes up and says, oh, we have this new medication. Would you sign this piece of paper? I mean, most of them are going to sign. Yep. And they have no idea about what the side effects possibly are. Yeah. The reason I asked that question was I saw an interview a couple of weeks ago with an emergency doctor, emergency room doctor in New York, who said that the patients that he was treating who had been diagnosed with coronavirus all showed very low levels of oxygen, but they were not having problems breathing, so he couldn't see why they would be intubated. And he said it was as if their blood was no longer able to hold, the, the hemoglobin in their blood was no longer able to hold and transport the oxygen around their body. And I'm wondering if what he was seeing was a side effect of these antivirals that have the effect of destroying hemoglobin. Uh, one of the things I learned from SARS is that during the epidemic, nobody knew anything. Doctors... Doctors would go into the hospital, they would use ribavirin, and they'd use corticosteroids, they'd intubate, they'd do all of these different things, and they were on a very reactive mode. Mm. They, they had no statistics about how well it was going. And it was only that there were a couple of investigations um, afterwards, that in, in like 2004 and 2005, after the whole thing was over, did information start to come out? Because it takes time to go through the charts and see when was this person given remdesivir? When was this person intubated? Right. You know, were they given corticosteroids? All of those different things. And so gradually, you can put all that into a computer and you can crunch the numbers and you can say, okay, um, remdesivir was associated with a higher or lower death rate. But at, at this point, you, you can't really do that. Mm -hmm. and, and these clinical trials, you know, they, they get... Oops. There's a press release saying remdesivir is wonderful. Mm. And, and we now have... Uh, uh, the world's second most favorite medical expert, Dr. Fauci, oh. promoting remdesivir. <laughs> and he owns shares, <laughs> doesn't he? Or, or, or the, um, the NIAID is, is financially linked with, uh, with the company that makes remdesivir, uh, Gilead. So may I ask you a question uh, from yeah, someone? Uh, yeah, I just want to mention yeah, that Gilead was um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld played an important role in Gilead, mm -hmm. just as he did with the uh, cereal that came out with aspartame. Right. And wherever Donald Rumsfeld has gone, you know, there's trouble. Death follows. Yeah. <laughs> Iraq or Gilead. That's right. That's right. So, uh, same list of, of sub suspects. Um, we've gotten a question here that I think is interesting from Sally Ann, who lives in the Philippines. I want to ask about the invasive nose swab testing. Why is that necessary? Wouldn't a regular swab or any saliva sample do? Or is the testing method part of the fear factor? I've wondered that myself. Um, it's quite painful from what I've seen. Yeah, I I think they probably think that uh, the outer part of your nose is more contaminated with the bacteria. So they figure if they go deeper into the 
uh, the nose that they'll get a better sample. Right. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's like a lot of things. It's like the social distancing, um, the hand washing, the mask wearing. There is probably no scientific evidence to say that this is better. I mean, how long have they been doing these nose swabs for coronavirus? About a, about a month. Uh, but it seems like everything that they're doing is designed to take all the fun out of living. And, and I, I think they must have a special committee that goes around trying to see if anybody's still having fun. <laughs> and then, then finding a way That's uh, to, to end it. You will not swim at the beach. You will not walk in the park. <laughs> you will lean back while I stick this, stick this long probe up your nose and you will like it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We have ways of making you do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. I, I suspect it's it's based probably on a theory, uh, which for which there's probably no evidence. That's uh, it's depressingly common mm -hmm. in this in this world. Yes. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about. I don't know how to pronounce this. I learned about this in school too. Either cokes or cucks postulates, which is, I was taught was the basins, basis of determining whether a, a particular microbe or pathogen actually caused a disease. And yet most of the diseases that we are treating or vaccinating against have never been able to fulfill, um, I think it's four, the four Koch postulates. Can you talk about that for a minute with us? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, they've been stated many different ways at different times, and they were they were really designed for bacteria. So there there does need to be some consideration of how it would work with um, with viruses. But Robert Koch, for people who don't remember, uh, discovered the tuberculosis bacteria, and he associated it with tuberculosis, uh, which I think there is an association, but I think there's also environmental causes such mm -hmm. as exposure to air pollutants. Uh, um, but he noticed that everybody in the late 1800s was finding a bacteria in somebody who was sick and then claiming, oh, that's the cause of the disease. That's the cause of hysteria in women, or it's the cause of cancer, or it's the cause of whatever, right? You, yep. you find all of these things, the cause of schizophrenia or whatever. And so he said, okay, let's, let's look at this logically. So he said, first of all, you need to purify the bacteria. Now, bacteria tend to be purified in a culture medium, you know, some kind of um, medium that they can feed on, right? You can't can't have bacteria in water because they'll all die because they don't have any food. Um, then you need to expose a susceptible animal to the uh, to the bacteria. Then you need to reproduce the symptoms of the disease, and then you need to repurify the bacteria. That, that's a sort of a checkpoint, because if you can't repurify the bacteria afterwards, then it, you, you know, you must have gone wrong somewhere along the, the way. Right. So, so with, with viruses, viruses can only reproduce inside cells. That's the theory. So what they tend to do is they, they'll take material from a cell culture and they'll say, this is isolated virus, but it's actually a mixture of maybe virus and a large quantity of cellular materials, cellular debris in many cases, because you've disrupted the cells 
to release the viruses, but you've also released all of the vesicles from the cells and you've broken up the cell wall and all the bits and pieces of the cell are floating around as, as anything else. So you need to separate the viruses from the uh, cellular debris. And that's where it is proven impossible. And this is the first of the Cox postulates. If you get pure virus, you can then expose an animal to just the virus. And then you can see if you produce the same uh, disease. But there's one animal experiment that was done with coronavirus where what they did, and this illustrates how far we are from Cox postulates. Um, they, they took the liquid on the cell culture, it's called the supernatant. And um, then they processed that a little bit. They, I think they centrifuged it and they took a portion of the centrifuge material and they said, okay, this is the virus. But they never actually put it under a microscope to prove that it was the virus. And I think if they had, they would have shown that it, it wasn't. So then they injected it into the nose, the nasal cavity of an mm -hmm. anesthetized, anesthetized mouse. And they discovered that the mice lost weight. The control, I think there were seven mice that they did this to, and then the control was three mice, which they injected saline. I was just talking to a doctor today and he pointed out to me that not only do we have cell culture material in here, not just virus, but they also add antibiotics um, in order to kill the bacteria. bacteria. And he said, if you inject uh, antibiotics directly into the lung of a human or a mouse or any other animal, you will cause problems. Mm. And if you're injecting deep into the nose of a mouse that's anesthetized, you're probably getting material into the lungs. So the control in this case of saline is completely bogus. Yeah. And the second thing is that these are genetically altered mice. And so their immune system is probably weaker than a you know, normal, healthy, wild type mouse. And so they may have been less able to fight off this assault of foreign materials going into their lungs. Like I'm sure yeah. in our body, we get foreign materials in our lungs all the time. And there's all kinds of defenses in the lungs to get rid of it, right? To If it's a yeah. bacteria, it's eaten up by white blood cells or whatever. Um, but these mice would not have had those defenses. So this kind of science, this animal science is totally bogus. And yet the scientists said, we satisfied Cox postulates. And what blows my mind is they used a saline placebo on an animal. When, when I was in school, you didn't need a placebo with animals because supposedly there is no placebo effect with animals. Why did they even bother doing that? Well, I, I think it's a it's a control. They were they were saying we've got the virus versus the saline, but they actually have the virus plus they have cell culture mm. debris plus they have antibiotics and um, other substances. Yeah. Like in the uh, cell culture, they use growth medium uh, to grow the cell culture, so that's in there too. Uh, I think bovine growth hormone is is bo bovine growth serum is um, is what they use, and so you have all of this variety, this mishmash of foreign substances that are going into the lungs of the mouse, the poor mouse, mm. and then the mouse loses weight, and they say, "Oh, it, it got COVID." Just like a vaccine trial, they have so many different um, components to the trial, and no real. Uh, placebo that you the results don't mean anything so they did not satisfy it how do you say it Koch's postulates 
Koch's postulates. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I don't speak German, so I'm not sure it's <laughs> Me neither. I was used to call it Koch's postulates, but that's probably just from being from New York. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, they, the reason I brought that paper up is because the paper explicitly stated that they had satisfied Koch's postulates, but they clearly had not. No. They didn't purify the virus. Um, and and therefore everything else falls apart. I mean, if you can't, it's so fundamental that you have to purify the virus before you can start with Koch's postulates. It's it's number one uh, on on the list. And it it also purification is also important for other reasons. Like how would you distinguish between a false positive and a true positive? Mm -hmm. So you have an asymptomatic person who tests positive. And so you say, okay, well, maybe this is a false positive. Maybe we should look into this. Maybe a lot of these asymptomatic people are false positives. The only way that you can do that is to purify the virus from people who are infected and to, to use the same process in people who aren't infected and not be able to purify. So let's say that you take a, 100 asymptomatic coronavirus positive people and you can purify the virus from 10 of them. Well, now you know that you've got 90% false positives. So purification is an incredibly important step, and it's just never used. Has any virus, to you, to the best of your knowledge, ever been purified? Not to my knowledge. Right. So every virus that we're told, measles, HIV, hep B, all of these, as far as we know, they, don't, they may not even exist. They are simply a group of symptoms that doctors or scientists have said are caused by this particular um, group of DNA, RNA, whatever, and we don't really know whether that's the actual cause or not. Yeah, and I think for a lot of those diseases, there are plausible alternatives. For example, DDT was heavily associated with the fruit harvest season. And, and so the most likely candidate for the cause of polio is, is pesticides, because mm. fruit used, prior to World War II, used arsenic-based pesticides. And after World War II, there was a short period where they used DDT on everything. You could buy DDT-laced underwear and paint for your house, because wow. DDT was the wonder, the wonder chemical, right? Um, uh, with HIV among gay men, uh, HIV is a bit more complicated because there seems to be sort of multiple subsets of people, like drug users and gay men and Africans have different risks and, and probably completely different causes for the disease. But if we just take gay men, um, starting in the 1970s, there was heavy use of a drug, a recreational drug known as poppers or nitrite inhalants. And these drugs are almost only used by gay men. And uh, the drugs are carcinogenic and immunosuppressive. And uh, all... AIDS-defining diseases are either cancers or diseases of immune suppression. So it fit uh, perfectly. And there was actually even a mainstream scientist, Harry Habercoss, working in the center of the empire, like NIAID, um, who did research and concluded that this, this recreational drug was the cause of Kaposi's sarcoma, the spots that are sort of associated with AIDS. Yep. You know, they're always shown in movies. Gay men get spots, and then they die of AIDS. Um, he, he received a, a lot of pushback and he was eventually told stop doing research in this area because now we have a virus, we don't need people looking at environmental causes. Um, so I, I think in all of these cases, there's, a, you know, an alternative 
to the mainstream theory that is 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 quite plausible. I mentioned with mad cow disease, phosmet, organophosphate mm. pesticide that's a nerve poison that was poured on the back of the cows. That's how they applied phosmet, is they took a can of it and they poured it on the, the cow and then they like brushed the cow because they were trying to kill flies that were in the skin of the cow. But as Mark Purdy um, pointed out, the spine is very close to the skin on the on the dorsal surface of the cow. Right. Right. So how many cows, especially say if the cow had a cut in their skin or something like that, they could have absorbed large amounts of of phosphate. Yep. But it's the it's the theory that's the most profitable, which is the one that gets the uh, the attention, and it is much more profitable to say that a virus cause this condition. I mean, you wouldn't lose any money by, you wouldn't make any money by not selling FOSMAT, but you could make a lot of money selling AZT and all these other things for uh, treating HIV, which is a disease that basically is so amorphous with such an incredible yeah. broad group of symptoms that you, can, you can't really even describe it. Um, I, we just got a really interesting question, and I don't know if you want to address this one, but how do antibody tests work for viral diseases? Um, because now they're, it looks like they're going from the PCR test to antibody testing. So um, how well, does that the, work? Uh, um, a friend of mine put together a chart comparing AIDS to SARS to coronavirus. And one of the interesting things is that in um, in AIDS, antibody tests show that you're infected. And in coronavirus, they show that you're not infected. <laughs> and uh, in, in coronavirus, RT-PCR tests show that you're infected. And in uh, AIDS, RT-PCR tests are not allowed for diagnosis. They're, they're not approved mm -hmm. for, for diagnosis. So the theory is that, that you... Um, get infected with coronavirus, you have the virus in your body, so the RT-PCR test is positive, and towards the end of the disease, you start to develop what they call IgG antibodies, which are believed to be the immunity antibodies, and then when you have those, you're immune. And this is why the Koreans, um, who, who I mentioned, you know, found all these people testing positive again, had to admit that they were false positives, or that's the route, they, that's the choice they had to take. Right. Because if they said that they were real infections, a lot of these people probably had these antibodies, and then you've got to say, well, okay, then the antibody test doesn't work, right? Right? It's like, it's like one of these things you're trying to, it's like you've got a puzzle and the pieces are mixed up, and you keep trying to jigger things around, and, and you can never get all the puzzles to fit. So I think it's going to uh, prove impossible to make the antibody tests align with the RT-PCR tests. Now, they have a very clever way to avoid this problem with, with HIV. If you send blood to a lab uh, and you ask for an antibody test and a viral load, which is quite common if somebody's, you know, suspected of being HIV positive but hasn't had a positive test yet, they will do the antibody test, and if it's negative, they will not do the viral load test. And this avoids the embarrassment of having a positive viral load with a negative antibody test. So they, make, they essentially make those 
disappear. Mm -hmm. Now, there are lots of examples in the literature of accidents where people have been tested and they're antibody negative, but they test viral load positive anyway. There was a German doctor who, who bypassed the system. So she, she put a vial of the blood of somebody she knew was HIV positive for the antibody test, knowing that it would be positive. And then she put a vial of her blood for the viral load test. And it came back with a viral load of like a million, like a, a high amount of virus. Right. But she HIV negative. So she had passed this screening mechanism. But with coronavirus, they have so much confidence in these tests that they're confident that the tests are going to be perfect. And that as soon as you're P PCR negative, you're going to be antibody positive. And 100% of the people who become uh, uh, RT-PCR negative are going to be antibody positive. And I just don't believe that this is going to be possible no. to, to make it all work. And, and why are Fauci and Burke saying, and, and other people too, that even if you have been infected with coronavirus, there's no evidence that you're not going to be infected again, that you actually develop immunity from infection when for other viral diseases, being infected develops immunity, means you've developed immunity. Well, it could be that they want to make sure everybody gets vaccinated. <laughs> but, but I mean, the, the flaw in that argument is that generally it's admitted that vaccine-induced antibodies protect for a shorter time than natural antibodies. I mean, even, even dogmatic pro-vaccine people will admit that if you got measles when you were a kid, you're protected for life. Mm. But they have to give you multiple measles vaccines because you're not protected for life if it's artificial artificially induced antibodies. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're betting that Bill Gates's vaccine is going to produce better antibodies than the actual infection, if that's, if that's what it is. And that is kind of an unbelievable gamble to me. Um, but I, I think it also could just reflect the fact that the antibody test isn't that great either. Um, and how did they even get the antibodies? Well, like, that's it. That can the antibody test differentiate between SARS-CoV-2 and any other form of coronavirus, even if you do consider that there is an antibody that's going to be developed? Well, that's another problem. Somebody sent me some papers today that I haven't had a chance to look at that are saying that the antibody tests cross-react with uh, SARS. There's probably still quite a few people who, who are around in that era. And uh, so they may they may find that uh, people diagnosed with SARS in 2003 uh, are testing positive. And of course, the coronavirus is the common cold. Mm -hmm. So are people going to test anybody positive? And, and, and they would say, oh, my goodness, um, that means that, you know, if you've had the common cold, you look like you're immune to the coronavirus, but you're not. So they don't want that. Right. right? right. So, so they have some really stringent requirements. The, the antibody test has to be totally specific for the new coronavirus. Maybe it doesn't matter about SARS because, you know, that's gone, but it can't react to the common cold. Um, and it has to be positive in 100% of people who had positive coronavirus tests and then went negative. Um, there, there's a lot of requirements that it's going to be very difficult to, to meet. But, but Donald Trump said that we're going to have a vaccine by January um, and it's going to be pushed out. He, he said something along the lines of, oh, we're going to push it out so fast, you wouldn't believe how fast we're going to push it out. How in the world? No, nobody's, ever pushed, nobody's ever pushed a vaccine out 
grasp on Donald Trump. I mean, he's, he's, very, he's very predictable. N nobody has ever reacted to a coronavirus epidemic better than Donald Trump. Mm. Um, I, I, maybe I can get a job as a sycophant for Donald Trump. Uh, I heard it pays well. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, in 1984, there was a press conference that announced that HIV was the probable cause of AIDS a month before any papers were published, which is, which is considered kind of a scientific faux pas. Uh, but it, it was for financial reasons. They, they wanted to uh, get their patents approved the Robert Gallo's patents for blood test. Mm. And uh, then they wanted to establish the US as the, as the discoverer. Robert Gallo said, we'll have a vaccine in two years. That was 1984. So people can promise whatever they want. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that they don't rush something out just in order to their timing problem is this, is if all of the lockdown goes away and then it turns out that there is no huge death rate increase yep. and that the number of people testing positive declines because basically the people who are going to test positive have already been tested. So everybody in the outside world says, well, we defeated the coronavirus on our own, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. That's the worst case scenario for the vaccine developers, because if they still have two or three years to go before they get a vaccine, what's going to be the appetite for the vaccine at that point? That's, yeah. um, so they could try to push out the vaccine without proper safety studies, without long-term uh, studies of, of efficacy. I mean, what if the antibodies last six months? Well, they do with flu. We've told three to six months with a flu vaccine. So that would mean that you need a coronavirus vaccine every year. Which is a great marketing plan for the pharmaceutical industry. Coronavirus yeah, is so here to stay. This is the new normal. Well, yes. I mean, I guess you can always spin it into a billion dollars mm -hmm. if, you, if you think about it. But, you know, how many annual vaccines are people going to line up for? And is our governments like Australia and Canada going to try to mandate uh, this vaccine? And, and, you know, what happens when stories start to come out because this is not like the flu vaccine where they have a little bit of experience. This is going to be very, very new. Mm -hmm. and, and you could have people literally dropping dead after they get vaccinated. And a few stories like that is not going to do wonders for their sales. No. And it'll be interesting to see when you mention Australia and New Zealand, because we're entering the flu season now. We're entering winter. And our government is looking at potentially ending the lockdown in the next few weeks. So is there going to be a huge increase in deaths from influenza, which we get every year, that are going to be classed as deaths from coronavirus, and that will be used as an excuse to A, mandate vaccines, and B, continue the lockdown? I saw someone interviewed a few weeks ago who said that this lockdown situation is going to be a regularly a regular occurrence that and they showed this, this graph that there's going to be an increase in coronavirus deaths so we're going to have to enter lockdown here we're going to have to decide what point we're going to reach to enter lockdown and then it's going to decline so we can end lockdown it's going to go up again lockdown I mean these talking heads who have control over our lives it is just 
amazing. It, I don't know what the end result is going to be. Is it going to be total domination where everybody's going to say, yes, please vaccinate me? Or is it going to be finally an uprising where people say, we are not going to take your vaccines. It doesn't matter what you say. We're just not going to do it because we can see the results. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I, I've been really amazed at how tolerant people have been mm -hmm. about the, the lockdown. Now, in, in Canada, it's not been too bad. I can I can go out anytime I want. I can exercise. Of course, I can't go to a restaurant. I can't go to a movie. Mm -hmm. I can't get my hair cut, you know, things like that. So I have limited things to do outside apart from exercise and go shop for groceries. Um, but people have been very patient. But if people get out for a month and experience, you know, it's summer, they go camping, but they get together with friends, restaurants start opening, they go out for dinner with friends, the theater's open, they go to the theater, and then all of a sudden the government says, oh, we're ending that, we're going back to the lockdown. I'm not sure people are gonna be so happy the second time around. Like, and I think that people may be doing some more reading. There's a lot of scientists like I'm on the radical end, the virus doesn't exist. But you have a lot of scientists who say, yes, the virus exists and it's pathogenic, but we still don't need a lockdown. Mm. We need to develop immunity. And the only way to develop immunity is if young people get infected. And, and that's the right way to do it. So there's an increasing number of these scientists and doctors who are coming out and contradicting um, the paradigm. And I knew nothing about Neil Ferguson, the, the mathematical modeler from England, but he was involved with Mad Cow. He was involved with the hoof and mouth disease uh, disaster where they, they killed like a million cows for nothing. Right. He predicted like 50,000 deaths from the human equivalent of Mad Cow disease in, in English people. And they, you know, total number of deaths were like 200. Um, and now he's in charge of, of the whole coronavirus thing. But a lot of information has come out uh, about him and the poor results and I'm hoping it discredits him. Yeah. Like, I don't know how. He's like Rasputin. He still has Boris Johnson under his thumb. Incredible. How, how is this? Failure breeds success in medicine. It's just incredible. It, Yeah, people, and, and the people who watch mainstream media, I think, are the main issue. If people would turn off their TVs, and with the lockdown, that's what a lot of people are doing. They're watching it day and night, cable news. And they are just being fed this propaganda 24-7 and it's affecting them. It's affecting their ability to actually think, to determine truth from falsehoods and, and to actually use their mental capacity uh, to do something other than believing what they're told. It's, there's a lot of information out there. Like somebody sent me a, a paper from um, that a old folks home in, in Brooklyn had had 55 deaths, all mm -hmm. recorded as coronavirus. And then at the towards the end of the article, it said, um, you know, due to various difficulties, not a single person in the in the um, old folks home had been tested for coronavirus. So it was 55 people recorded as coronavirus mm -hmm. deaths for which there was no evidence that they were coronavirus positive. And in, in Belgium, they have a very simple system where everybody who dies in an old folks home is classified as coronavirus death. And they've tested 5% of the people. So they're pumping up mm, the numbers, they're they pumping are. up the fear. And every time somebody gets killed with a ventilator or remdesivir or chloroquine or, or some other drug that they're pushing on people, that's recorded as 
as this virus is deadly. The virus just killed another person. Yeah. Well, that's not true. Bill de Blasio, um, a, a couple of weeks ago, I think they had 7,000 deaths in New York City at that point. And Bill de Blasio, who's the mayor of New York, came out and said, anyone who dies at home, there should be no testing. Their deaths should just be put down as coronavirus. And overnight, they went from 7,000 to over 10,000 deaths from coronavirus in New York. Um, it is obvious. It is such an obvious lie, and yet this is what we're being told. Matt Reeves says Fauci needs sacking. No, Fauci needs jailing. He does not need sacking. No, he needs put him in a sack, tie it up, and drop him in the lake. I think that's what he does. <laughs> like all cats. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh yeah, it's true. It's really true. So there were other things I know I wanted to ask you. You tell me, what is it that people need to do to get to the truth of this matter and to get over this incredible fear that we're being fed? Well, um, uh, I, I would hope people would read my article, my long article on theinfectiousmyth.com, which is my website. Mm -hmm. But I also have um, uh, several podcasts there, including my interview with Stephen Bustin, uh, another podcast where I kind of went through RT-PCR more slowly, uh, my review of the 33 FDA-approved tests. I interviewed Remington Nevin, who's a world expert on the uh, quinoline family of drugs about oh. chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And he talked about the serious adverse effects of both drugs, which are ignored by um, the media. Uh, but there's, there's lots of other websites. There's another... MD, PhD named Andrew Kaufman, who's come to very similar conclusions um, as myself. And he talks a lot about exosomes, which are these particles that are produced by your body uh, that look like viruses. They're indistinguishable from viruses. And um, uh, so his his stuff is, is very complementary to mine. And, you know, all of these, um, there's a, a website called Off Guardian. Dot com. I think if you just uh, Google Off Guardian, you, you'll get it. And it was set up by people who had been banned by the Guardian newspaper. That's why it's called Off Guardian. They'd yeah. been kicked out because they had said things the Guardian didn't like, and especially about medical issues. And it published a list of 12 scientists who questioned the lockdown. And these were incredibly credentialed scientists, people like the pulmonologist Dr. Wodog from Germany and, and Peter Gottschi, one of the most respected evidence-based um, medicine people in the world. And then they published another 10 uh, scientists. And then there's, you know, there's another group of scientists. So there's more and more critical voices coming out. And so whatever aspects you're interested in, uh, you can find people who are making arguments that make a lot of sense. And often the response, like I listened to this Swedish scientist or epidemiologist, Wittekind or something like that. So he did a YouTube video that was very popular and it was very critical of the lockdown. And then they attacked his resume. They, they said that he had said he was a professor at a university and he was never a professor at the university. I, th I think they twisted his words or they misunderstood, or maybe he wasn't totally clear when he, he, he gave it. But he, he said, you know, when people have nothing against your argument, yeah. they go after you personally. Uh, it's like there's, you, some people may have seen the inter very long interview with two emergency room doctors in California yes. from Kern County. 
Well, they've been savagely attacked. They've, they're basically a couple of hick doctors from the middle of nowhere. You know, what are they? <laughs> and that's kind of been, uh, you know, the, the attacks are kind of absurd because the, the idea is that you have to take these people down. And yet when the mainstream, you, you have like Fauci speculating wildly about things, the mainstream media just report it as if this was perfectly normal. Because it suits their agenda to do that. And when you see YouTube and Facebook saying that anybody who does not align with government policy and medical community mantra on these issues will have their posts removed and will be banned, outright banned. That, that interview with those two doctors has been taken off of Facebook many times. I downloaded it just to have a copy of it uh, because it is important information. But when you see that sort of thing, if you have evidence to back up what you are saying, then you don't try and silence opposing voices, dissenting opinion. You debate it because you can back up yes. what you're saying. But when you have to silence dissenting voices, it is proof that you have no evidence. And that's what happens in this case, in, in coronavirus and vaccinations. There is not an attempt to debate this. We're told there is no debate and um, opposing voices are silenced. Uh, it's actually shocking how little doctors often know. I have a couple of anecdotes. Um, a friend of mine was diagnosed um, HIV positive, um, a, a young gay man, and he asked me to come to his first uh, meeting with the doctor. And obviously the purpose of the meeting was to put him on the drugs. Yeah. And uh, so during the meeting, I, I said, um, is, excuse me, but what do you know about HIV testing? And sh the doctor laughed and she said, well, I send the blood to the lab and I get back a response. I get back a result. And I, I, I couldn't believe what she had just um, <laughs> said. Another, another time when I was coerced into getting the yellow fever vaccine because I was going to a country and I was told it was mandatory, it turned out later, it wasn't really mandatory, but anyway, I got it. Um, but I, I brought a tape recorder and I asked the infectious disease doctor, she was supposed to counsel me. So I said, um, you know, has yellow fever satisfied Cox postulates? And she looked at me with a blank stare and I said, well, has it been proven to cause the disease? I mean, is there scientific evidence? She said, oh, yes, yes. So she gets out this book, which is like the infectious disease handbook. And it's, it's like, go to Y, yellow fever. And she says, look at all these references. And I looked at them quickly and I said, okay, CDC, World Health Organization, there is not a single scientific reference here. Yep. You know, what you get from the CDC and the World Health Organization is propaganda. They, they give you a watered down summary of what they think the virus does based on whatever they want to come up with. And, and those were, you know, uh, specialized MDs, an AIDS specialist and an infection and a an, um, tropical disease specialist who had no clue about their domain of expertise. No matter how many times I hear how ignorant doc the average doctors are about these infectious diseases, it never fails to shock me. And yet we have the government saying that these are the experts and they are the only ones that we should be getting information from. And yet they know nothing 
about vaccines. They know nothing about infectious diseases and they know less than nothing about nutrition or health. What actually, what health is. I think that the cause of this epidemic is the fact that journalists and politicians cannot survive if they're critical of allopathic medicine. Imagine a journalist who publishes an article in a mainstream media about adverse effects of the HPV vaccine. How long does that journalist last? Not long. 15 minutes. Mm. Clean out your desk, get out of here. <laughs> um, the same for a politician. What if a, a, a politician, you know, the public health officials come and say, you know, we need a HPV vaccine initiative in Calgary. We, we don't have enough people, enough girls vaccinated. What if one of the politicians starts saying, but aren't there adverse effects? And isn't it, you know, really not that effective and stuff like that? Yeah. There's going to be a concerted effort to get rid of that politician. You're going to find all kinds of money flooding into your to your opponent. And at the next election, you're going to be out of a job. So politicians and um, and journalists have learned that you keep your mouth shut on these issues. And that basically means you only listen to the people who are giving you the propaganda. And so when the public health officials say, OK, we have a new crisis and we all have to line up and jump off a cliff, then the politicians and the journalists, the politicians say, we'll follow you, sure. And the journalists say, you're not jumping quick enough. <laughs> so if you don't behave like a lemming, you'll never survive. Only the lemmings actually get their voices heard. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the job, of the, the job of the politicians is to round up the lemmings, right? The public health officials say, the cliff is this way. And the politicians get behind the lemmings and they herd us <laughs> to the edge of the cliff. And then we all jump off together. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's it's a very a, good analogy and a very sad one. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and actually, the politicians don't even have to push too hard. I mean, people are so scared that they're they're acting like the neighborhood watch. They're, they're acting like the this neighborhood Stasi committee mm -hmm. that, you know, checked on, you know, any unpatriotic behavior in East Germany or in China or in Stalinist Russia. They were always neighbors who were nosing about trying to see if, if somebody was reading books they shouldn't be reading or right. thinking thoughts they shouldn't be thinking. Well, that's what we're saying. Yeah. Making jokes about um, the politicians or something. It's quite open now that that the government and the media is asking people to become snitches. Um, it is now not only socially acceptable, but patriotic to tell on your neighbors who are doing something that could cause coronavirus to spread. Um, I, I read about someone who, uh, oh, I saw a video yesterday on YouTube of two police officers turning up at someone's house. And it may have been in Canada because the accent was Canadian, though it could have been like Minnesota or something. But um, they, the police officers turned up at this person's house and said, I was told that you were going to be allowing your daughter to have a play date with a neighbor's child. And I want you to know that mm. if you do that, you will be arrested. It's like, whoa, how did we get here? And, uh, you know, it, it's we have reached a point where 1984 on steroids has come and the majority of the people seem to be welcoming it in. And those are the people who we need to wake up somehow because they, yeah. they feel they're living in a democracy, but they're not. 
I just want to very briefly tell you about a study. Let me see if I can get it up here. This is something that, uh, here we go. Let me see if I can find it. Pardon me for doing this. Um, this is a new study that's being done in the UK, and it's going to be intentionally infecting people with coronavirus in order to, oh, let me just stop this video because it's playing. All right, I don't think the, the sound is coming through anyway. But um, there we go. Now I can get rid of that. Um, this company in the UK, a medical research company, is paying volunteers £3,500, so almost $7,000, um, so that they can be used to test coronavirus vaccines. Uh, they're being put, they're going to be held in isolation in a laboratory for two weeks, not able to have exercise or physical contact with others, and they're also going to be placed on a restricted diet. Now, we're told that it is unethical to test vaccines by um leaving one group unprotected for the sake of testing it. And yet this study, study, um, this form of torture, medical torture, is being conducted in the UK. Um, and, and they're not even giving the coronavirus to these people, not COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, whatever you want to call it. They're being given two other strains of coronavirus, which they say are milder. Um, in order to research a potential coronavirus vaccine. What sort of, how can this sort of a study possibly be used to test a potential coronavirus vaccine? Oh, well, <laughs> it's, it seems like an incredibly expensive way to go about it for something that will probably fail. Uh, I mean, people are being paid thirty-five hundred dollars, thirty-five pounds. So if 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 you want to put yourself in jail for two weeks, uh, you know, and risk your health by being, you know, exposed to something, I don't I don't think it's a virus. But you know, that doesn't mean that these these compounds they're giving you won't do any harm. Mm. Um, but you know, will it will it actually stop you from getting the becoming coronavirus positive? Uh, I suspect not. No. Um, but of course, they're not going to expose the people to coronavirus because they say, oh, that's too dangerous. So it, it, we, we end up in this situation quite a bit where you, you have a choice between um, experiments that are ethical or experiments that produce useful scientific information or neither. But it's very difficult to come up with with experiments on human subjects that are both ethical and produce really good scientific information. For example, take e Ebola. If Ebola is a deadly hemorrhagic fever, you cannot expose people to uh, Ebola. You cannot leave them unprotected. So generally what they, they do is they err on the side of, of uh, science that's like borderline unethical and produces no useful scientific information. And, and then they, once they get the vaccine approved or the drug approved or whatever it is, they can go out and give it to millions, but they've never proven that it actually stops the disease. No. I, I mean, vaccine advocates have been saying this for a long time. You know, I want 
a trial that is double-blinded, randomized, true placebo control, using disease as an endpoint, not antibodies. Because antibodies do not prove that you won't get sick. So right. let's let's have a measles vac uh, let's have a measles vaccine that's tested to see in these young children who've never had measles. Let's let's see which ones get measles and which ones don't. They, they will never do that experiment, and they will use ethical grounds to deny the experiment. They will say if you have a placebo and you're exposing children are going to get exposed to measles, that's unethical. But it's unscientific to collect information that's useless. Yep. And it's not ethical either. Like to involve somebody in a clinical trial when the data is not really useful is also not ethical. Like right? this Like if trial. you expose yep. somebody, yes. So if you expose somebody to um, you know, a potential vaccine or you expose them to remdesivir and the information that comes out is not solidly scientific, then it's unethical to do that because you've exposed people to danger for no scientific gain. Yeah. Like most people in a clinical trial would say, I will take a little bit of a risk if I know that the information is valuable for science. And that's what they're told, but it usually isn't valuable for science because there's so many flaws in it. It's, you know, it's not a, a proper placebo controlled randomized trial. No. So what do you think will be the result when we do come out of lockdown, well, no, sorry, I shouldn't even be asking you that. Will we see a time when the nations that have gone into lockdown, like the United States, like Canada, like Australia and the UK, are compared with countries that did not, like Sweden, like Taiwan, um, like some countries in South America that have not gone into lockdown and have not seen the huge numbers of deaths and numbers of cases? Yeah, like South Korea and Japan did not lock down, and, and they've both had relatively, they've had a lot of cases, but a relatively small number of deaths. And that may very well reflect different medical approaches. They might not have intubated. They might not have used antiviral drugs, things like, things like that, right? Could be differences. We don't know at this, at this point. But either way, it's going to show that, that the disease was not as deadly as we've been yes. told, and, and that the lockdown was probably unnecessary, and that our economy. I mean, it's possible that we're going into another 10-year Great Depression because of mm -hmm. this two months of lockdown, uh, because businesses yeah, have been forced. Agreed. I think we're now in the ego phase. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a bunch of politicians who are wedded to the lockdown. Mm -hmm. We have uh, important, highly paid public health officials who are wedded to the lockdown. And if they back down now and, and say it was a mistake, They've just destroyed their credibility. So the only way for them to get out is to pretend that they heroically overcame the virus through the lockdown and they can let us out now. I'm seeing progress in my province of Alberta. You know, one of the crazy things they did was they they shut down all the provincial parks. That's where people go. Uh, we also have the national parks like Banff. But uh, the provincial parks are smaller, but they're closer to Calgary, and that's where people go often to go hiking and skiing and snowshoeing and and bicycling and all kinds of stuff, right? So they they didn't close the parks, but they closed road access, which basically meant closing the parks. Right. But for what reason? Because when people go out into the wilderness, they're not going out there to meet other people. They're going out there with a small group to climb a mountain or 
go skiing, right? And you might cross somebody's path, but you're further apart. So the consequence of doing this is that all the people have been concentrated into the city parks. So if you go on the, the paths by the rivers in Calgary, they're chock full of cyclists and skaters and walkers and all kinds of things, right? Yep. Um, so anyway, all of a sudden, yesterday, the premier announced that as of today, May 1st, uh, provincial parks are open again. And within two weeks, uh, hairdressers, clothing stores, uh, all those things that are being closed uh, will be open. Restaurants can open to 50% capacity and things like that. So there's a sudden reversal. And, and as I said, like now that people are going to experience a bit of freedom, I don't think they're going to look kindly on a sudden reversal. And okay, now go back into your house and close yourself up again. Because I think people look back on that. It's actually a time of trauma. They're mm -hmm. isolated from their friends. Their children are, are, are going crazy. Yeah. They, they can't amuse their children. Um, you know, people who have drinking or drug problems have sort of de descended into, uh, you know, sitting around all day uh, uh, with their addiction. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think people are, are going to want to go back, you know, once they see their elderly relatives, which they haven't seen for two, three, four weeks, um, they're going to realize that their relatives need them, and they're going to see in their relatives, uh, their elderly relatives, a real decline in in their psychological state. Yeah. You know, like I, I have a 90-year-old mother who lives in a town by herself, and uh, she tells me that she basically doesn't see anybody. She goes out for a walk every day, mm -hmm. and there's nobody on the streets. And then she comes back to her apartment. Nobody in the uh, the condominium complex is talking to her or to anybody else. They're all avoiding each other. And so she spends she spent like three weeks in in solitary confinement. That's horrible. And she's a strong woman with no health problems, and she's still mentally alert and stuff. But what about somebody who's stuck in a wheelchair mm -hmm. or somebody who has some health issues? Like, how's that going to go? Those are some of the saddest stories I've heard out of this whole coronavirus madness is the people in aged care. Some some aged care facilities in Australia off their own bat have gone into total lockdown. No visitors allowed. So people who are elderly have been allowed no visitors. They're not even allowed in the common area. So no entertainment, no talking to each other, no nothing. They are in solitary confinement. And they're dying like, like flies because that's a, a great way to make people die quickly. But there are people who have gone into hospital uh, because they have cancer, because they are uh, really, really sick. And they have been put into rooms by themselves. Their family is not allowed to visit. They're not allowed mm -hmm. to see them at all. And they're dying alone. Nobody should die alone. That That should never happen. And... It's a sign that our government and our medical community have become so separated from what is human. They are not at all human. So um, I just hope that, that when we do come out of this lockdown situation that we will realize that we've been sold a bill of goods. And I know we're going way over time, so I'm sorry. You probably I, have it's other okay. things I'm, to I was do. just thinking, I was, I was uh, thinking of a couple of um, humorous points. Um, you probably know about David Icke, yes. who's 
maybe he's right that we're, we are actually run by lizards because, because <laughs> the politicians are acting in a very cold-blooded fashion mm. and they, they seem to have no human warmth. Now, I'm joking. I, I do not believe in the lizard theory. But uh, another thought that came to me was a Swedish movie, I think, that's called The Hundred-Year-Old Man. And there's this old man living by himself and uh, he's a bit eccentric and his, his daughter comes over one day and he's like shooting cans with his gun or something like this. And so she says, okay, this is it, dad, you have to go into the old folks home. So she, she puts him in the old folks home. And, and while she's talking to the staff about, you know, what he needs and what he likes and things like that, he's going out the window, <laughs> out the back <laughs> of the old folks home. And, and, and from that starts the adventures of the movie. It's really one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. But it, it, we are isolating people and social connections are really, really mm. important. Um, you know, I think for an old person who's sick and who's maybe aware that they're going to die, touch with their son or daughter, their grandchildren, mm. just even seeing them, being around them, seeing their grandson being a pain in the ass, <laughs> you know, is it brings life into their lives yeah. and to be locked into a room. I, I know two MDs who work with old people and they've both said that there's a lot of neglect and the neglect is coming from the fear of the staff. The staff are afraid they're going to die because they're going to get infected by these old people and therefore they do the minimum mm -hmm. necessary. They bring in a, a meal to their room, they put it at the bedside and then they leave. They, they don't want anything to do with these people. And because there's no relatives, the, the people are in a, in a state of total isolation. The United Nations has to define solitary confinement as, as torture. And it is. And, it is. and we're, we're torturing our old people. Uh, and, and, you know, like I say, these, these are not old people who have 10 years of life left. But for the surviving relatives, a little bit of time at the end of their life is very important. It is. It's true. And and hopefully we will come out of this, out the other end of this, realizing that we've been lied to, realizing that this whole thing was not a pandemic, but a scamdemic, and, and knowing that the people who we have put up on pedestals and said they are the ones who know, actually know nothing, and start questioning everything that we're told. Uh, David, it has been amazing speaking with you. Um, you have so much knowledge to share. I hope everyone downloads your paper. I have put a link to your website, uh, Thank you. to your Thank podcast, you. and to the paper up at the top of this broadcast. And before we leave, let's have a coronavirus cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! I, I when that when that started, when that started, I was I was at like I was out with some friends and I just went no no it's either a hug or nothing. I am not doing I'm not doing the elbow bump. <laughs> All right, that's good. Let's go out and give everyone okay. we know a hug, and let's pray that this yes. um that this people, madness ends. <laughs> people people need hugs. They mm. need they need real social contact and. Skype is 
is great if you're separated from people, but it is not a substitute for real human connections. Not at all. Not at all. So thank you so much. You have been amazing. I think everyone, there's been a million comments and I haven't been able to go through them. Oops, sorry, I have not been able to go through them all, but I will look at them later. And if you feel like coming back and looking at them, you can do that too. It's on our Facebook page. But David, I want to have you back again, hopefully in happier times. And thank you again so much. Um, Enjoy your Canadian summer and I will talk to you soon. See you okay, later. Thank you. Bye bye. And, and goodbye. Thank you. Bye.